Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 114 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be taking a look back at the original Nintendo Entertainment System with special guests Allison Hayslip and Blake J. Harris. Allison is an actress and TV personality who was featured in the recent documentary Video Games the Movie, and Blake is the author of the new book Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation. But first up, we've got an interview with award-winning science fiction author Charles Strauss. His latest book, The Rhesus Chart, is the fifth volume in The Laundry Files, a series that blends spy thrillers, Lovecraftian horror, and workplace humor. And now, here's our interview with Charles Strauss. All right, so we're here with Charles Strauss. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Okay, and so your new book is called The Rhesus Chart, and it's the fifth book in the Laundry File series. So first of all, why don't you just tell us a bit about the basic premise of the series? Sure. The basic premise of the series is sort of a cross-genre mashup. It's a humorous horror subsection spy thriller about the British Secret Service for protecting us from uh, Cthulhu, the old ones, and other Lovecraftian horrors from beyond space-time. Um, part of its premise is that magic exists, but is effectively a branch of applied mathematics. If you solve the right theorems, creatures elsewhere in the uh, multiverse will hear and possibly obey, giving rise to a field known by its practitioners as applied computational demonology. And so how did you first get the idea to combine spy thrillers and Lovecraftian horror? Let me rewind to 1992 when I began writing a short story titled A Call to War, which eventually surfaced in print around 1998. It's one of the longest stories I've ever written. Now, A Call to War started when I was looking at uh, At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft, which had some moments of sublime horror in it. It's one of his classic um, stories. However, Lovecraft's horror has very much been devalued in recent decades. It's reached a point where we have plush Cthulhu dolls and bedroom slippers, where it's a suitable subject matter for jokes or for comics. It sort of lacks the level of cosmic horror that it originally came with. In 1992, uh, shortly after the Soviet Union collapsed, I was trying to think, how do you put the horror back into H.P. Lovecraft? And I suddenly realized you make something that truly is horrifying. 1992 was just after the end of the Cold War, and if you were alive back then, you lived with the ever-present knowledge that vast cool intelligences thousands of miles away might at any moment be making decisions that would unleash the power of a thousand suns and basically melt the skin from your face and kill everybody around you and destroy everything you hold dear for entirely abstract reasons relating to an ideological struggle that never really touches you directly. Um, there was something really terrifying about the Cold War that traumatized the generations that lived through it. And in A Colder War, I, posited, I positioned the story as sort of a sequel to At the Mountains of Madness, in which a vast alien city is discovered abandoned in the Antarctic. And I posited that if this had actually happened, over the next decade or so, there would have been first an archaeological race and then an arms race as various global powers sought to steal alien super technology, the tools of an extinct race, and put them to use as weapons. And 
one thing leads to another, and it doesn't end well. World War Three breaks out. Cthulhu himself is deployed as a weapon from a crypt in the Urals. Everybody dies horribly or worse, wishes they could die. Um, and this worked really, really well as a horror story. It's still anthologized to this day on a regular basis. But while I wanted to do more with this idea, I couldn't do it in that particular setting. It was just too dark. Now, if you're dealing with horror, one way to get around the problem of it being horrifying for the subject material is to add some snarky humor to it. Uh, we've noticed, for example, Jim Butcher do it with the Harry Dresden books. Um, what I was doing with the Laundry Files was I decided to go to by situational humor. You take a setting, in this case, a somewhat grungy, down-at-heels, peeling-paint British government agency dealing with something obscure and quite terrifying, and parachute into it somebody who is totally inappropriate, utterly unsuited to that sort of office culture. In this case, Bob Howard is sort of a sandal-wearing, slash-dot-reading hacker geek, circa late-1990s.com startup culture. He's been conscripted, effectively, into a branch of a British secret service for protecting us from the scum of the multiverse. Um, almost a Men in Black scenario looks at very, very different in um, MacGuffin as to what's going on and how it's run. And he's flailing around, gradually trying to figure out where he, what his role is in all this, um, as he becomes aware that the shadows are lengthening and some very, very nasty things are on their way to... Uh, Make life nasty, make make life hellish all around for everybody. A large part of the plot armature the series revolves around is a eventuality that the British government has codenamed Case Nightmare Green. The stars are coming into the correct alignment for the return of the Elder Gods, H.P. Lovecraft's alien super super civilization from Aeon's past who previously owned and occupied this planet and who are now returning and will drive us all insane or kill us or just sweep us from their halls like the vermin we are. Um, the Laundry's job is to defend the realm, keep the public from becoming too panicked over what's going on, and try to find a solution to what is probably the end of the world and that's heading towards them like the onrushing lights of the train at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I first became acquainted with your work through your Accelerando stories, which kind of go from before the singularity to after the singularity and tell what it's like to live through that period. And it occurred to me with these, with the Laundry Files, it almost seems kind of like a similar thing with the Cthulhu reign, where it seems like with Case Nightmare Green, this is going to be a story that starts out before Cthulhu comes and is going to end up after Cthulhu has come. Do you, do you see any sort of similarities there? Quite possibly. The key similarity here is they're both science fiction, and they're both written from that form of science fiction that is the literature of disruption. Um, in many forms of literature, uh, it's against a setting which is essentially unchanged by the story. Um, your classic boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl story in J. Random other genre, be it romance or historical or just a mainstream novel, doesn't fundamentally change the universe it's set in. Whereas um, there's a particular flavor of science fiction where nothing is ever the same after the climax of, an, of a story that is narrated within it. Um, the Lord of the Rings is a classic example of a fantasy literature where there is this sort of return to the status quo ante after the huge events. Um, 
my way of thinking of it is much much of the best science fiction assumes that there will never be a return to the uh, status quo ante after the events of the story. And there is that in common between Accelerando and the Laundry series, although I'm still quite a long way from getting to the end of the Laundry series, and I'm not sure whether it is technically the same genre as Accelerando. Um, I do more than one type of fiction, and it does actually feel very, very different to me. Mm-hmm. Now, do you um, did you plot out the whole series ahead of time, and how, or like, at what stage did you plot out the various books, and how far ahead are you currently plotted? Um, when I began writing it, circa nineteen ninety nine, I wrote this short novel called The Atrocity Archive, no trailing S, and um, around two thousand, I acquired a literary agent and sold my first novel, Singularity Sky, which came out from Ace in two thousand and three, and I sent. Well, my agent and I were getting to know each other, and I sent her the Accelerando stories and the Accelerando pitch, and I also sent her the Atrocity Archive. And her immediate reaction to the Atrocity Archive was, you know, this is great fun, but, but it's commercially not viable. It's impossible to sell. Nobody will publish it. Uh, they won't know what genre it is to begin with. Is it horror? Is it humor? Is it a spy thriller? Is it SF? Is it fantasy? So for a while, it looked as if this wasn't actually going to get published at all. Um, I managed to get it serialized in a short-lived, obscure Scottish SF magazine around 2002. And then in 2003, a small American publisher, Golden Griffin, approached me for a book. And they wanted a bit more than just this short novel. So I added a novella called The Concrete Jungle. And they published it together as The Atrocity Archives, the first book in the series. And it looked for a while as if it was just going to be a one-off. Then something really, really weird happened, and The Concrete Jungle got shortlisted for a Hugo Award, and then it won a Hugo Award. Now, when that happened, uh, my agent actually got interested suddenly and realized that, yeah, there was a market for this. So we sorted out a deal whereby I would write a sequel to it, and from there it sort of snowballed. Now, when you've written a paranormal spy thriller, in the style of Len Dayton, if you want to do a sequel, there's only one place to go, and that's Ian Fleming. And I'm afraid I burnt my brain out on Bond movies. <laughs> I went through them back to back for about 16 of them in four weeks. Also rereading a bunch of the Bond novels and biographies of Ian Fleming. Um, I actually did flowcharts of the structure of the opening sequence in each Bond movie. Um, and at this point... I sort of dropped Case Nightmare Green in as a throwaway in The Concrete Jungle, the second novella in the series. And I gradually began realizing, yeah, there has to be more than this. So the next book deal out, there's a contract with another laundry novel in it. And that one begins to riff off Case Nightmare Green explicitly. And that was the Fuller Memorandum. And by the time I'd got through the Fuller Memorandum, I knew what the next novel would be. By the time I got through the Apocalypse Codex, I knew a fair bit about the Rhesus chart, and I'm now actually plotting about three or four books ahead, with an overall backbone to the series of maybe eight or nine central novels and a number of side branches off the tree, which for something that was originally going to be a short novel on its own, and then at best maybe a trilogy, is, um, well, it's just been growing. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, what have been some of the challenges you faced along the way? I saw you posted on your Reddit, Ask Me Anything. You said, I was staring down the barrel of a gun loaded with, how about we just cancel the series right now? And the quickest way to dodge the bullet was to write the next novel a year early. Well, that's one way to dodge a bullet. The reason for that cancellation was because um, being a bit burned out at the time, I decided I needed a year 
away from having to write a novel. I'd been trying to do two novels a year for several years, and you will just burn out if you try and do that. So I bolted together a short story collection titled Wireless. And with any short story collection, readers who've already read all your stories need an added incentive to to look at it. So I sat down and began writing a novella, um, which was titled Palimpsest, um, about the time police, because I hadn't read a good time patrol novella in years and thought, well, hey, nobody's doing it, so why don't I? Anyway, because this was the one story in the collection that hadn't been sold before or published or edited, I thought I should run it past my agent. And her reaction to it was pretty much electric. She said, this is brilliant. It's the first third of a novel. How about you write the rest of this novel? And, you know, I can get a letter in and slip it in instead of that laundry novel you were going to write. and We can cancel it. And that's when I sat down and wrote the laundry novel in four weeks. <laughs> um, four weeks of sort of 14 hours a day. Um, because I suddenly realized at that point I was highly committed to that series. I hadn't quite realized how serious about it I was before. And the irony is Palimpsest won a Hugo Award as well. And sooner or later, I'm actually going to finish the novel, which is the first third. It's just, um, there's another timeline in which uh, I did finish the novel of Palimpsest, and uh, the other laundry novels never got written. Hmm. Well, yeah, I guess that brings us to the newest laundry novel, which is the Rhesus Chart. You want to just tell us about that? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I sort of got bored um, doing tribute novels to British spy thriller authors. I've gone through Len Dayton and Ian Fleming, and Anthony Price, and Peter O'Donnell. And I decided it was time to actually stop going after individual authors and go after themes. So the next few laundry novels are all about urban fantasy subgenres. Um, I've done a novella about unicorns. That's Echoid, which is on this year's Hugo shortlist. Um, the Rhesus Chart is a vampire novel. Um, by way of background, I should mention that our hero, our narrator, Bob, is married. He's sort of about 40-ish at this point in the series. He's been aging one year for every year during the course of writing the books. Um, and he's married to Mo, Dominique O'Brien, who is, whose job description is combat epistemologist. Um, and uh, they're out having dinner at a restaurant. And our book opens, Don't be silly, Bob, said Mo. Everybody knows vampires don't exist. Well, yeah, you might think everybody knows vampires don't exist. And we can be pretty sure vampires don't exist. We don't see huge piles of dead bodies everywhere. But, you know, if vampires don't exist, why are we all so certain they don't exist? Could it be that there are vampires? There are just very, very few of them, and they're very, very careful about covering up their tracks. Um, and the premise of the Rhesus chart is... In the universe of the laundry, there are various very, very quiet supernatural beings living, um, doing their best to keep out of the public gaze. And everybody around Bob is so convinced that vampires don't exist that Bob, being a contrarian, decides to go and prove that they don't exist, or at least do his, set up an experiment whereby he will get five sigma accuracy to lack of signal for vampires. And much to his surprise and gradual horror, he discovers that, um, unfortunately, he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's funny because uh, in this book, Bob gets assigned, he has to sort of do research on vampires, which consists of reading Brian Lumley, Anne Rice, Jim Butcher, and Laurel K. Hamilton. Just sort of what's your take on the state of vampire fiction and, and those authors in particular? Well, I did pick on them out of a certain creeping affection. But the thing is, uh, there's been such a huge boom in vampire fiction now, it's probably unfair for me to single them out because 
let me let me rewind a little bit. Arguably, the modern vampire book dates to the mid-1970s and late-1970s, an interview with a vampire by Anne Rice. That was a classic of its form. Prior to that, there were isolated vampire novels. There were things like Salem's Lot by Stephen King. Um, but they were all very much in the tradition of the vampire as the adversarial monster. Um, Interview of a Vampire was arguably the first one to get under the vampire's skin and use the vampire as a sympathetic protagonist. Then we move forward a decade, and Laurel K. Hamilton pretty much single-handedly drags the vampire story kicking and screaming into what is now recognizable as the subgenre paranormal romance. Um, Here, the psychosexual symbolism of a vampire is changed, and rather than being a metaphor for disease or for rape, it's used as a vehicle for exploring issues of consent, domination, and BDSM practices. Um, Now, uh, I decided to actually go at it from an entirely different tack in the laundry books, which is epidemiology and parasitology. Um, Although, to be fair, a similar field is being plowed by Myra Grant or Shauna McGuire, as she's really called, uh, who's been doing zombies and is now doing other parasites as a horror format and using much the same approach. Let's look at it from a medical point of view. How did we get onto this question? What was the question again? <laughs> uh, just Brian Lumley, Laurel K. Hamilton, Jim Butcher. Yeah. Um, the reason these authors get mentioned explicitly in Reese's chart is because Bob has been assigned a bunch of background reading by a committee. Because, let's face it, the first thing a civil service department does on discovering a hitherto new and unstudied phenomenon is establish a committee to investigate it, determine what is known about it, set standards for dealing with it. And, um, of course, vampires don't exist. Everybody knows vampires don't exist. Everybody is absolutely certain vampires don't exist. And the people on the committee. Well, Bob is the only one on the committee who is cleared for knowledge that vampires do in fact exist. It is considered secret at this point, and the others don't take it terribly seriously, including the chair of the committee who assigns him his reading matter as homework, mostly to shut him up. Hmm. I think one thing that I thought was so interesting about this book is that vampirism is not spread by being bitten or something like that, but it's being it's spread by a, an epiphany or uh, something that you come to understand. Actually, that's a side effect of the way magic works in the laundry universe. In this instance, I mentioned magic as a branch of mathematics. Um, people who do, who, there are some people who are very talented practitioners or very effective mathematicians who can actually carry out magical operations in their brains, um, actually doing it in their head. Most people, Bob included for that matter, usually go about it using a computer and setting up various bits of software applications to do the job for them you really don't want to go messing around with the apps on Bob's smartphone if it falls into your possession. Um, but the case of the vampires in the Rhesus chart, they're part of a fairly high-powered programming team working on high-frequency trading algorithms within an investment bank. And uh, one of their members comes across an interesting visualization tool. Now, I mentioned there are Lovecraftian horrors in this series. Um, there's a whole bunch of creatures out there that love nothing better than to chow down on an unprotected human brain. And think the wrong thoughts, and you can um, attract them. And uh, 
vampirism, it's not so much an epiphany as something that is attracted to and latches onto you after you experience that epiphany. And um, let's just say vampirism is a particularly unpleasant parasitic disease. Most sane people who succumb to vampirism just kill themselves. Which is one reason why everybody knows vampires don't exist. The only people who are willing to be a vampire and stay with the deal are pretty much psychopaths. Well, actually, and uh, uh, sort of speaking of that, there's a character in this book, Oscar, who's uh, a corporate guy. He's a, sort of described as being kind of an apex predator sociopath. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. I mean, I've, I've heard you talk about how <laughs> you predicted uh, in, in your Halting State series that corporations would start intentionally recruiting sociopaths to work for them. And that actually started to happen. Um, yeah, well, I wouldn't take Oscar too seriously, but I was doing a bit of reading at the time about the sociology of the high-end investment banking culture in the city of London, and it's really quite terrifying. Um, these are not people who should be trusted with a pair of scissors, frankly. Personality-wise, they're very, very driven, very, very competitive, reasonably bright, fairly well socialized, well, fairly well socialized for young men who've been up for a single-sex boarding school culture. They're shoved into a pressure cooker, and they're set to playing a game for 16 hours a day where the point score system they get is measured in the terms of how many millions of pounds their bonus payment is. And these people are running our economy. They've got so much money floating around the, tr the hedge funds that they operate that um, governments provide them with the playing field they desire because they're too terrified of scaring them away. Um, Currently, the British uh, revenue base, uh, we still have an industrial sector. We still make satellites and cars and all sorts of stuff. But the investment banking sector accounts for a bigger share of GDP than manufacturing. I believe it's the same in the United States. There's something very, very wrong when what is essentially a parasitic function, namely investment, becomes the largest component of the economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh... and we're back to parasites again. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, sort of, uh, uh, in terms of kind of uh, evil business practices and stuff, there's this really funny line in the book about how uh, Bob doesn't want to use a Kindle, uh, because uh, he says that there are sort of scary implications, dar darker esoteric uh, implications to spending too much time staring at a device controlled by a secretive billionaire in Seattle. Well, yeah, but um, don't get me started on Amazon. I'm a novelist. Um, I'm published by Hachette. My books have been blacklisted and blocked by Amazon on multiple occasions. I'm not bitter. I just <laughs> get my own back in fiction. But people could go check out your blog post, Amazon, malig Malignant Monopoly, or Just Plain Evil. Absolutely. Also, I did a blog entry a couple of years back on understanding or deconstructing Amazon's business model. Um, for those people who are more wonkish about the economics of how it works and what Amazon are trying to accomplish. Um, let's just say they want to be a monopoly as much as Google or Facebook want to be a monopoly. Um, and if they get their way, it's going to be a pretty scary contingency because the Internet as we know it will no longer exist. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, since these are spy thriller books, I think one of the biggest things you have to take into consideration uh, is the Edward Snowden case and all the revelations that have come out about the NSA spying on citizens. How has that affected the kind of the ecosystem for writing spy thriller novels? 
it's probably having a deeply insidious effect that will take longer to work its way through than the collapse of the Soviet Union, but be even more shattering. For a couple of years after 1989, there were a queue of already sold technophilas in the pipeline about World War III in Europe between the Soviet Union and NATO. And, you know, you can just see the authors tearing their hair out of the books come dribbling out two years after the Warsaw Pact collapsed. Um, you can imagine how their sales stunk. Um, and um, I think we may be seeing a much more subtle effect on the spy thriller today from the Snowden revelations. Because what has happened is they've massively eroded public faith in not merely the ability to function of the security services, but their very reason for existing. Now, I began writing the Laundry series in 1999. And um, back then, the whole Snowden thing just wasn't even on the radar, nor was 9-11 on the radar. In a silly anecdote, in mid-2001, I handed the manuscript of the Atrocity Archive to my editor of this small, small Scottish SF magazine, Spectrum SF. And he works on editing it. And then in November 2001, I got an email from him, kind of plaintively saying, you know, Charlie, I know you're looking for a bunch of mad terrorists who are going to attack the United States and, do, and summon up something really horrible in uh, Santa Cruz in California. But do you think maybe you could find somebody a bit more obscure than Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda? Um, and I've gone looking for crazies who are likely to attack the United States in 1999. And who was at the top of the list but Al-Qaeda? And yet, totally unforeseeable that two years later, they would be so well-recognized and infamous everywhere. And the same sort of thing has happened with the Snowden revelations and confirmation of what a lot of people have suspected all along about the scope of bugging of the NSA or their British equivalent GCHQ. Um, this stuff is, has been suspected by professional paranoids for decades. It's just that it's now coming out in the public domain and everybody's getting smoking, seeing smoking guns on every mantelpiece and seeing confirmation. Now, I'm not sure how to actually address this in the Laundry series yet. I'm still digesting it. What I can say is I'm working on a different near-future techno-thrillerish spy thriller trilogy set in my Merchant Princes universe, a publication in about a year to 18 months that is my, I guess, definitive post-Edward Snowden spy thriller. But that's not really the subject of this podcast interview. Oh, well, actually, I do want to talk about those books a little bit. But um, before we get to that, on, on this subject, you had a blog post about why there won't be a third halting state book because stuff you were predicting keeps coming true. Not so much it keeps coming true. The real reason there isn't going to be one now. Oh, OK. Shortly after I wrote that blog entry, um, I had a blinding flash of light, a moment of revelation, and the plot for the third halting state book landed in my brain. So much for saying I'm not going to write one. However, there's a different reason for not writing one at present, which is what I describe to people as the Scottish political singularity. These are near-future police procedurals set in an independent Scotland about crimes that don't exist yet that are technologically mediated. Now, the trouble is, the future of Scottish politics is utterly unpredictable right now. We are less than three months away from a referendum, a public vote, on whether Scotland should become independent from and leave the United Kingdom. And according to some of the opinion polls, the vote is balanced by you know, a swing of as little as 3%. Either way, could affect the outcome. Um, furthermore, even if Scotland votes to stay within the Union, much less to leave it, the process of negotiation will 
drag on for about 18 months, during which time there'll be another British general election. And during the past few years, the Conservative Party, who are currently the primary party in the coalition government, have been becoming more and more europhobic to the point where they're pretty much explicitly going to run on a platform that involves an option to leave the European Union or have a vote on leaving the European Union. So um, at this point, Scotland is going for a political singularity. I cannot with any certainty at this point predict what country I'll be living in or whether it'll be part of the EU or not or what system of government it has two years ahead. So the third holding state book has basically been shelved for a couple of years until the dust settles. Mm. Which, I mean, you, you previously had to kind of shelve a concept for a third halting state book because it turned out the NSA was spying on World of Warcraft players. Uh, no, not quite. What, had, what did happen, though, was I, sh- I postponed the second book in the series for a year and a half because um, I was about to start writing in 2007 when the banking system went crazy. And the original plot for that novel, which came out as Rule 34, it was originally going to be titled 419, and it was about the world's largest Nigerian advanced fee fraud. Um, a bunch of scammers were basically going to steal from the World Bank, the European Union, the U.S. Treasury, a sum roughly on the order of 20 to $30 billion by faking the existence of an entire Central Asian Republic. And then the banking system goes sideways, and from the wreckage crawls Bernie Madoff blinking, and everybody wants to know where the 50 billion he's stolen has gone. And, you know, Bernie Madoff basically blew away that plot. At that point, I just could not write that book anymore, so different ones surfaced instead. Um, it is very, very difficult trying to write plausible near-future science fiction set within 15 years of the present day. Um, the problem is that the world we're living is undergoing really weird convulsions every couple of years. And also, the near future, you've got to recognize that it's simultaneously 90% intimately familiar. No, 90% of the buildings are already there. We're living in them. 90% of the cars are on the road. 90% of the people are alive. About 9% of it is new, but predictable. We can look at plans on file with various city authorities for what skyscrapers are going up in the next couple of years. We can look at Intel's roadmap for where their chips are going to be in five years. And then there's the 1% that nobody can predict because it's just too blindingly weird. Nobody in 2000 was predicting 9-11. Nobody in 1990 was seriously predicting universal uptake of a World Wide Web. Everybody around 2004 was thinking smartphones of a way forward. But the idea that Apple would be the dominant player in that space, that they'd have these huge, high-resolution screens linked to the sum total of human knowledge, and we'd be using them to watch silly cat videos, um, you know, it would not make any kind of sense in any kind of realistic near-future prediction anyone could make. So writing near-future SF has almost become a dying art. There's very few people doing it these days. And um, if I seem to sort of falter or throw my hands up in despair every so often and just say, nope, I can't go there. It's because it is actually quite a hard game to do. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned that these upcoming Merchant Prince's books are going to be your definitive statement on, or at least your latest statement on the Edward Snowden situation. Do you want to just talk about what's going, what the latest news is with that series? Um, The previous series was sort of set in 2002 to 2003. And 
it started out it was actually a bait and switch it was it started out looking like a secondary world fantasy where no portal fantasy where a person from our world finds themselves in a fantasy land and tries to make a path for themselves only rather than playing it as fantasy i played it as science fiction and particularly in the realist mode our protagonist finds herself in a quasi-medieval setting and uh, does not particularly wish to succumb to the fate that is common to women living in a crapsack world medieval setting. So she tries to disrupt it. Um, unfortunately, she succeeds. And um, when you disrupt something, it has consequences, some of which are pretty damn unpleasant. Uh, by book six, or book three of the new revised omnibus editions, large numbers of mushroom clouds are floating around. Uh, because one of the side effects of economic disruption is she accidentally starts a couple of nuclear wars by not realizing just how much is at stake. Now, the new series picks up the thread about 17 years later um, in a couple of different timelines. On the one hand, we have the United States that was traumatized in 2003 when the Bush White House was nuked by extra-dimensional narco-terrorists. The Department of Homeland Security in this universe has pretty much turned the U.S. into a police state. They've been given responsibility for protecting the nation from threats from all possible parallel universes. And we are talking a level of surveillance in everyday life that is at least on a par with what you get in any given airline concourse these days. Don't even ask what happens at airports. And... Um, they are indeed becoming quite worried because they know that the the merchant princes, the extra-dimensional, well, the narco-terrorists who could travel between timelines, some of them are still out there. They know there may be other civilizations out there, and they're afraid of what will happen if they make contact with another paratime-capable civilization who learn how they dealt with the first people they met, namely lots of B-52s. And over the course of this trilogy, the sum of all fears is going to happen. They're going to make first contact with another paratime-capable North American superpower, only it's not called the United States of America. Um, and I don't want to give too much away about it, except, well, post-Edward Snowden, it's about the tension between omniscient surveillance and actual real security, which is not the same thing at all. Mm. You know, uh, back in episode 61, we interviewed Paul Krugman, and he really had a lot of great things to say about the economics in that series. Does, are the new books going to deal with economics, too, or is it going to be more more to do with the, the politics and espionage sort of stuff? There are economic issues in it, but they're very much backgrounded. Part of the problem is I've spent so many years noodling around with the ideas of this series in my head, but... Um, trying to cram everything into a trilogy of uh, relatively short books into basically something the size of a single um, Neil Stevenson doorstep is uh, forcing me to skimp on some of the fine detail I'd worked out. On the other hand, you know, we've got a term of art for that in science fiction. It's called, here, I've done all my homework. Now you can suffer for my art. And I'm not going to force the readers to suffer for it just for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually, you know, when, when we interviewed Paul Krugman, he mentioned how you guys did a panel together at Worldcon. I was just curious if you've kept in touch at all, or have you? Um, not with any great frequency. I've, I've, we've seen each other occasionally, but that's about it. He's a very, very busy man, and I live somewhere that's fairly remote in travel terms. Mm. 
All right, cool. And then the um, one thing that really interested me about the Merchant Princes series is that it's the the, the basic premise of um, characters who can walk between parallel worlds is sort of uh, inspired by Roger Zelazny's Amber series. And I saw you say on Reddit that if you could kind of hang out for a day with a deceased science fiction author, you would choose Roger Zelazny. That's actually what I would choose as well. But could you just say why that would be your choice? Zelazny was a master stylist. He he raised the bar for a lot of people trying to write science fiction in the late 60s to early 70s. He was still writing cutting-edge material right up until his untimely death due to lung cancer. He wasn't very old when he died. Um, and it just seems like missed opportunity to me. I did actually have an opportunity to do dinner with him once for the convention committee in, I think, 1989, and didn't make the effort to get to town at that time, and it was about six months later that he died of lung cancer. So there's an element of personal nostalgia there for roads not taken. But also, he I believe he'd be quite a fascinating guy to talk to. Yeah, just imagine what he would have to say about all the, the new media and all the stuff that's happened since 1996. Well, for that, you'd have to possibly was keeping up to date on it. And one thing to bear in mind is by now he'd be in his 60s to 70s. And as Douglas Adams put it, any technology that existed when I was born has been there forever. Anything that comes along before I'm 36 is new, fascinating, and important and useful. Anything invented after I'm 36 is new, incomprehensible, and annoying. <laughs> yeah. Um, right, cool. I also I wanted to ask you about the, the laun- there's a, a laundry pen and paper role-playing game. I was just wondering uh, what your experience with, with that has been. Have people, players told you stories about things that have happened to, to them in that game, stuff like that? Relatively, I try to keep hand, at arm's length and hands off to some extent because I believe it has developed its own sort of subculture and fandom, and I don't want to run the risk of meddling in something that I don't myself play and disrupting other people's scenarios or gameplay. And at the same time, I don't want to run the risk of being accused of plagiarism, I guess, from other mm. people's ideas. So. It's something I try to keep a reasonable distance from. I stay in touch with Cubicle 7, who write the game and the supplements, and make sure that they're up to date with what I'm planning and with the series and where I'm going to take it. But I don't want to tread on their toes too hard. Because, I mean, you, you did used to be pretty involved in role-playing games, right? I saw that you wrote some of the monsters for the Fiend Folio. In my mid-teens, um, I haven't really been a role-player since I was about 20, and that's four decades ago and I care to think about <laughs> Um, yeah, it said that you you, you uh, added the Githyanki to the Fiend Folio, which was based on a George R. R. Martin uh, Dying of the Light novel. Yeah, that what was, was the... well, that was actually a throwaway of, of, of his, as far as I could tell, in his first novel from the mid-70s. So uh, you're going back a long way here. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, but what, what, what was this? What was the connection between his novel and the... Um, I basically took the name and ran with it for this uh, bunch, for this, I guess, species of extratemporal alien horrors for Dungeons and Dragons back in the day, in the late 70s. I was looking for a name, and uh, George R. R. Martin has always been pretty damn good with names. Mm. But you're saying that in, in that novel, it doesn't really flesh out what they are, that you just basically took the name? I took the name, yeah, yeah. rather than any detail. Mm. Uh-huh. Actually, uh, speaking of George R. R. Martin, uh, on Twitter, Not Timothy says, asks you, how does it feel playing George R. R. Martin with your characters? <laughs> It feels good. 
basically, when you have too many characters in a series story arc, if you kill a whole bunch of them off, it does two things. Firstly, it makes your job as writer much, much easier. You've got less stuff to keep track of. Secondly, it keeps the readers on their toes and emotionally engaged. They can never be too certain that the, that the uh, hero or heroine they're rooting for is still going to be alive in the next book. Now, it's a card you've got to play very, very carefully. Absolutely never kill off a major character without at least thinking through the consequences and also how the readers will respond to it. But there are times when it is necessary in a series, and in particular, I shouldn't give any spoilers away, but it would probably be fair to describe the climax of Arisa's chart as being the Laundry Series' Red Wedding. Hmm. Uh, let's see, we actually have a bunch of Twitter questions for you, not all of which I understand. Um, okay. But uh, let's give this a shot. Well, okay, this one is uh, from uh, Chip Salzenberg. He says, does Bob Howard use Perl? I think Bob Howard has recent stuff to use Python instead. That's okay. your answer. Okay. Uh, and then uh, William at Fenadone says, is Turing completeness a sufficient condition for possession? What about magic? The what about a Magic the Gathering card deck? Q Alanis Morissette. Yep, Turing completeness is sufficient, and, you know, thereon probably hangs another laundry story or two. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I'm just not sure that this, this is, uh, makes sense to people who haven't read the books. Um, like, it probably doesn't. Okay, <laughs> all right, well. The books have a very, very geeky audience. Yeah. All right, well, I guess people just have to read the books if they want to understand. I mean, something you haven't mentioned at all in the recess chart is a really, really extended series of set-piece jokes all about a programming software engineering methodology called um, Scrum Programming, which, well, I think most non-programmers have missed. Those people who've been involved in Scrum seems to read the whole thing uh, rolling on the floor laughing. <laughs> Um, all right, then let's see. Adam Shea asks, this might be a spoiler, I don't know. Is, is Howard still susceptible to K-Syndrome, and is Howard still human, or is he, is he more hungry ghost plus meat puppet now? That's a spoiler. Yeah, figured. Uh, and then Peter Herndon asks, I want to hear the full briefing, parentheses, you aren't listening, are you? Sorry? <laughs> I was hoping you would know what that meant. Uh, it says, I want to hear the full briefing, uh, quotation mark, parentheses, you aren't listening, are you, question mark, close parentheses, close quotes. I have no idea what that means. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Um, okay, so um, uh, let's see, back in episode 106, we interviewed Carl Schrader, and he was talking about all the potential applications of blockchain technology, the technology behind Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And I know that you wrote a a, a very anti-Bitcoin uh, blog post, and I was just wondering if you were familiar with the kind of stuff that he's, he was talking about and what you think of it. A little. Uh, my position on Bitcoin isn't about cryptocurrencies per se or about the blockchain technology. It's about the ideology implicit in the way Bitcoin has been implemented, which looks to me like it was designed by libertarians with the goal of undermining conventional currencies which have an intimate, deep-rooted relationship with the nation-state itself. Um, 
it looks like a system that was designed to corrode the, exi- the primary economy and in many respects make it difficult to tax. That's the problem I've got with Bitcoin. I am not, shall we say, an anti-statist or minarchist. Uh, I mean, I mean, Carl was talking about various, like he was saying that smart contracts using the blockchain technology might be replacing lawyers within a matter of months. Do you have any opinions on that kind of thing? I think that's a little bit optimistic. I think <laughs> lawyers are going to be here for a very long time to come. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that they're not being automated and their numbers are reduced in many ways. The demand for individual numbers of lawyers is dropping like a stone because a lot of the jobs that used to go to newly qualified lawyers, a lot of the research jobs in law libraries are now being automated thanks to searching. But that doesn't mean that actual practicing lawyers who are doing stuff in court or dealing with contracts are going away. Um, yeah, it's uh, the future of law is an interesting question. Mm. All right. Well, and how about the future of the uh, Laundry File series? I, the, I see the next two books are The Armageddon Score and The Nightmare Stacks. You want to tell us about those? Um, change of title. It will be The Annihilation Score, and we still haven't worked out the title for the seventh book. Um, and I probably shouldn't say too much about them, except that they will be coming out next July and the July after. The series is actually going annual for now. Uh, um. <laughs> Yes, I guess someone needs to update Wikipedia on that one. I guess, uh, is it, why, why did you change the title for the Armageddon score? Okay, this is going to sound really silly, but one of my editors is hip to search engine optimization on the web. And it turns out that if you Google for Armageddon score, you come up with a lot of links to the soundtrack to a Bruce Willis movie. <laughs> and unfortunately, Bruce Willis is probably more famous than I'll ever be. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, we decided the best way to avoid a namespace collision with Bruce Willis is not to go there to begin with. So new title needed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've heard you say online, like who those, what perspective those books are going to be written from. Uh, is that something you want to talk about, or? Oh yeah. Um, all the laundry books up to this point have been narrated by Bob, who is a famously unreliable narrator. He's a bit self-serving, a bit self-deceiving. What Bob tells you is not necessarily true. It's just the way Bob sees it. Um, The next novel, The Annihilation Score, is going to be told by Mo, Bob's wife of about a decade. And her view on Bob will hopefully be a bit of an eye-opener for those readers who've been taking what Bob says at face value. As for the novel after that, I shouldn't say too much about it, except my current plans of it will be narrated by a guy called Alex, who shows up for the first time in the Rhesus chart. And funnily enough, he's a sort of guy who gets really, really, really bad sunburn if he goes out without a burqa hmm. in daylight. Uh, all right, cool. So uh, that does it for the questions. Are, is there any, are there any other uh, new or upcoming projects or anything you want to mention? Right now, no, because I am currently juggling finishing a Merchant Princess trilogy and two more laundry novels. That is far more than I can cope with, actually. <laughs> um, so I'm taking a rain check on new projects until I've actually got these under control. Although, who knows what the future will bring. All right. Well, definitely looking forward to everything. And so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Charles Strauss, and his new book is called The Rhesus Chart. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, and it's been a pleasure. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Charles Strauss for joining us on the show. 
And for our panel today, we'll be discussing the original Nintendo Entertainment System, and I'm joined by three guest geeks. So first up, we've got my longtime co-host, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor and publisher of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also the editor of various anthologies, including Press Start to Play, an upcoming book of short fiction inspired by video games. So John, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Then next up, we've got Allison Hayslip. She's an actress and TV personality who's appeared on G4, NBC, Nerdist, and The Nerd Machine, as well as in various film and TV projects, including Battleground, Saturn Returns, Video Games the Movie, and the Team Unicorn Saturday Action Fun Hour. So Allison, welcome to the show. Ah, oh, thanks for having me too. And finally, we've got Blake J. Harris, author of the recent book Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation. He's currently co-directing a documentary based on the book, and will also serve as executive producer for an upcoming feature film adaptation from Sony. So Blake, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right, and so the first thing I want to talk about is just our earliest memories of the NES and how we first encountered it. So I'll just start. So I uh, used to go to a pizza place downtown every Friday with my parents where I would play the Super Mario Brothers arcade machine. And I really loved it, but they would only give me 50 cents to play it, so I didn't get very far. And then at some point later, I was down at a friend's house who, uh, who lived on my street, and I just walked in and he was playing The Legend of Zelda. And, you know, you start out with kind of this brown sword, and then if you go north a little bit, you walk up this long staircase into this cave, and you get this white sword that's more powerful. And I walked in right as he was doing that, and I was just like, oh my god, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then he showed me Duck Hunt, and he showed me Super Mario Brothers, and, you know, it looked exactly like the arcade. I was just blown away. And because, you know, prior to that, there would just be the Atari, and it looked nothing like the arcades. It looked really terrible. So just the idea that I could play the arcade Super Mario Brothers on my TV was just really, really amazing to me. Uh, so how about Allison? Why don't you tell us, how did you first encounter the Nintendo well, first, system? I would like to say that I thought those swords in Legend of Zelda, the brown sword was a wooden sword. And the white sword was a steel sword, right? They weren't the colors. <laughs> know, That's you... what I pictured in my eight-bit <laughs> mind. But how can you kill a monster with a wooden sword? That would take forever. Because they were lame monsters, and that's <laughs> what it did take forever. You only knocked off like a quarter heart or whatever. Hmm. Um, my, It's funny that you said the thing about the pizza place, too, because I used to go, there was a pizza hut that was not close to where I lived. It was a very special treat when we got to go to Pizza Hut. And I loved going there because they had a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade machine there. And oh, I could wow. care less about eating the pizza. I just played <laughs> the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game forever. But my earliest Nintendo memory is, uh, I, th I believe I was eight and it was Christmas. And I opened up a big box and I got the Nintendo Power System with Super Mario Brothers, Duck Hunt, and that like, Olympic track game with the power pad and all that. Mm -hmm. And I lost my mind. We have it on VHS. <laughs> it's like the greatest thing ever. And I also was given the DuckTales game. And that was the first game I ever completed. And how about Blake? What was your first experience with the NES? Uh, despite being a uh, Jewish individual, my first experience is a Christmas memory. Um, and my brother and I unwrapped the Nintendo Entertainment System. I think it was Christmas 1988. And I remember opening it up and feeling so excited and so powerful and also simultaneously feeling like I don't even really know what this is. I just knew everybody wanted 
to this. This was the it thing. But the concept of video games, I don't think even fully made sense to me until <laughs> we got home that night and hooked it up and spent um, the rest of the night playing it. And that's the main thing that I loved about the NES is that almost all of my Nintendo stories start with a Wii because that was kind of the only thing that kept me and my younger brother um, mm. civil with one another during these years, though it did lead off into many fights. But so all my earliest memories are with him and uh, definitely bring a smile to my face to discuss them all <laughs> these years later. Uh, and John? Yeah, you know, I mean, I was a video game player, like, since I can't even remember, you know, when I was, uh, when I was a real little kid, you know, we had the Atari 2600, as so many of us did, and, uh, and then after that, I had, like, a VIC-20 computer, and then a Commodore 64, so, uh, in between, like, the Atari 2600 and the NES, I was, like, playing video games, like, the whole time, like, even after the Atari had sort of went away and nobody was playing Atari, I was playing games on the Commodore 64, um, and so... I, like in retrospect, I'm looking at it, it's like, how the hell did the Nintendo Entertainment System exist? And I didn't know about it for like four years or something. Cause I mean, like I, I can remember first playing it when I was like 12 or 13. And, a, you know, like, like you were saying, Dave, it was like a friend of mine had it and it was like my mind was blown. And, uh, I can't remember what game in particular, but I, I know we definitely played a lot of Mike Tyson's Punch Out. And that was like, I think, I think that was the first game that I actually played on it. And we played it over at his house. And cause it was a good game that you could play together, you know, and, and play and, and play against each other and stuff. Um, or at least I think you can. Could you? Actually, now that I'm saying that, I don't know that if you could. Yeah. That sounds it, it was, a little fictional, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. So we must have, we must have just played it uh, and taken turns, uh, you know, beating up all the different characters. Yeah. Cause it wasn't the sort of fighting game that you could actually fight each other. You only could fight the bad guy. But um, I think you make kind of a good point, though, just in that, like, my favorite memories are not even really playing the NES. It's usually, like, watching other people play or feeling like, mm-hmm. like oh, yeah. we were part of this team trying to defeat these things that, like, where do they come from? Where, what, what are we doing? <laughs> and and so, following the strategy guides and things like that. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like, my, my friends had, uh, well, my best friend when I was growing up had, he was one of five kids, and so they're always fighting for the NES. And one thing you could do with Super Mario Brothers is if you pause the game using the second controller... Mario would lose all his momentum. So if you wait until your brother jumped over a pit and then paused the game and then unpaused it, he would just drop straight down into the pit. <laughs> oh my gosh, I never knew that. Wow. <laughs> wait, did you guys know? I, I only learned this like maybe five or six years ago. But when you're playing Duck Hunt, if you like you plug the gun into player one, if you plug the controller into player two, another person could control the duck. <laughs> what? Yes. No way. I no, no, that's, I, I, I knew that. I used to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I had you no idea. You can't stop the duck from going up, but you can make it go back and forth however you want it to. It's insane. And it's like, <laughs> why would you ever know that? It never said it in the instruction guide. It's like someone just figured that out somehow. So wait, so how did you find that out finally, like years I, later? Someone, someone told me, like in a conversation, I was like, you're fucking with me. That's that's not true. Why would I not know that? And he's like, try it out. And like the next time I was around an old Nintendo, I, I tried it. And I was like, oh, my God. What? <laughs> it's like, why didn't we know this 20 years ago? <laughs> well, I mean, Blake, you said that it seems like everybody had an NES. And it certainly seemed that way to me. I think you say in your book that one out of three households in America had them. Is that right? Yeah. So going into the writing of my book, I was, you know, I grew up playing it and it was a big part of my childhood as it was yours. But I had no idea, like, from a financial and business standpoint, how successful it was. It was in one in every three homes in America. And I was looking at a list of the top 30 toys in 1989. And 25 of the 30 were either Nintendo games or Nintendo related products, which is just like, incredible. They So they they weren't just, you know, the leader in the industry, they had over 95% of the industry 
And uh, I put up a little photo on Twitter last week where Nintendo actually took out an ad saying there's no such thing as a Nintendo. There's a Nintendo Entertainment System. There's Nintendo Games. But basically, don't use our name to become mm. synonymous with video games because it really was that synonymous that they were mm. already defending their trademark. Um, and that's pretty ironic to look at now because I'm sure Nintendo would love to be the uh, jacuzzi <laughs> of video yeah. games. You know, it's funny. It's funny because, uh, you know, we all like sort of fixated on video games because of the Nintendo Entertainment System. But it's like now it's like, fuck Nintendo. Who cares? Like, you know, like <laughs> I mean, their systems that they have now, like I haven't played a Nintendo system in ages. Like, I mean, since basically the PlayStation 1 came around, like I haven't played a Nintendo since since then. Uh, and, you know, of course, I mean, obviously uh, PC gaming and all kinds, you know, there's all kinds of other gaming now as well. But I mean, yeah, just Nintendo. Like, I don't care. And it's sad. It makes me it makes me sad. Yeah, but I mean, speaking of PC gaming, though, I mean, because I grew up as a PC gamer and like people just like made fun of me, right? Because like nobody else <laughs> had a computer and, uh, you know, it was just seeing a, like playing computer games was seeing as something kind of weird. And it really seems to me that the Nintendo Entertainment System was the thing that really made gaming mm-hmm. something that everyone was doing. It totally yeah. mainstreamed it. Well, it made it accessible because like it says, it's it's an entertainment system. Mm-hmm. It's not gaming i mean even though that's exactly what it is but just how they branded it showed that they were trying to get into more households that way as opposed to sort of you know sectioning it off as being like this is what computer nerds are into and not just i don't think it made it more accessible but i think i feel like i remember in say 1990 you know my memories are a little hazy as a kid but computers were very nerdy things felt very 1984 felt very distant from me and then by 1995 you know a personal computer felt like a normal thing to have. And I do feel like Nintendo, Super Nintendo, and Sega Genesis was a big part of that acceptance of, okay, mm-hmm. here's a lot of electronic things that we can control, have fun with, and, and like we know how to play them and use them, whereas our parents maybe don't. And that was kind of a nice aspect to it. Well, I mean, Allison, you mentioned um, that they, they didn't call it a gaming system. They called it an, like, in an entertainment system. And I never knew right. this, but in this movie you were in, Video Games the Movie, they said yeah. that they, ha- they did that intentionally and that they had like the robot somehow was part of that, of not making yeah. it seem like a yeah. gaming system. I'll be honest. I did not know that until I watched the movie. Um, and I was like, that's what, that's the great thing about this film, video games, the movie, is that even if you're a hardcore gamer, there's still a ton of stuff that you can learn from watching this thing. And what I didn't realize, probably because we were all too young to know that this had happened, was that Atari basically bombed with an E.T. game. Mm -hmm. And it was it was such an awful failure that it basically scared off anyone from being part of the video game industry. So when Nintendo released their system, they didn't want to be associated with video games. And that's why they called it an entertainment system. And they felt like they had to add on all these accessories so it wasn't that you were just buying a console. You were, you know, you were getting the the duck hunt gun and you were getting this little robot dude and <laughs> which I don't even know what that guy did. I don't think I ever saw one of those in real life. No, you guys are totally right. There what he had absolutely no purpose. He was like Allison said, he was just a Trojan horse to make this thing not an Atari 2600 <laughs> or ColecoVision. And I was speaking with the original salesman who would go into New York for Nintendo's test launch and they had this robot and you know they they talked about how cool he was, Rob the robot. Um, but he didn't even work. That they always pretended like they didn't have batteries or that the model like didn't work. Um, it was really just like smoke and mirrors. And and you know if you factor that in, this was say 1985, and then five years later, Nintendo is 95 percent of this five billion dollar industry. It's just amazing to think you know their own little David and Goliath struggle to resurrect this video game industry 
and then they're sort of the Goliath in this David and Goliath story. And, uh, you know, there's so much that goes on in such a short amount of time. That's why, you know, I'm, I'm psyched that video games, the movie documentary came out and that people are starting to look more into this industry and, and appreciate it for all this, all the rich history. I actually played that E.T. game that Allison mentioned, and <laughs> having played it, I have no trouble understanding how it completely destroyed the entire video game industry. Wow, really? Um, oh, oh, yeah. You can't even imagine how bad that game is. I mean, the guy, he made it in a couple, I think, four weeks or something. Yeah. So like, what, no. I was curious about what made it bad. Was it just terrible gameplay, or did it actually, like, did things not work? Well, no. You, I mean, my experience of it was you would just walk around, and then you would fall into a pit, and yep. you couldn't figure out how to oh, get out of the yeah. pit. And yeah, that was like that, the whole game. So I, I wrote this book and I made this documentary and we talked about how bad it was. And then I finally played it and I felt like, man, I didn't even do justice to how bad <laughs> it was. You, it, it's the gameplay, I guess, is fine. It's really just there's no goal to the story. You just walk around and you do fall in this pit and then you make your head bigger and then you come out of it. And then what? sometimes this guy in a yellow jacket chases you around and then sometimes he gets you and then nothing happens. Um, <laughs> so I can see why this game destroyed the industry it was just awful but so so like how did we go from that though to i mean the 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 first round of nintendo games were so good i mean super mario brothers legend of zelda and metroid were just like perfect games and how did how did we go from like these atari games which i played all of them they were mostly all terrible uh to some of these like incredibly polished games just a few combat years later. was not a terrible game uh okay okay three of the mo- three three of the 89 modes in combat were pretty good <laughs> that was my favorite game ever <laughs> i mean it's just um i guess in the two years or three years since the industry kind of crashed nintendo just kept going and they were able to break through technologically um but even when they did have those great games that you mentioned or the percentage of great games that you mentioned um the guys would go into the stores and nobody would want to sell video games because they didn't care if it was the greatest thing in the world. These guys had their jobs because the person before them had gotten fired for losing so much money on video games. You know, the perception was that video games were a fad, and that seems kind of silly in in hindsight. But I can kind of understand it because there was that personal computer revolution brewing, and I could see a world in which people said, okay, we don't need a dedicated console. You just got these, these computers are going to be in your home, so let's just make games for that. But Nintendo to their credit, believed in their great games and whether or not you like what they're doing these days, and I definitely don't like a lot of it, um, you know, they still do make great games. That's always been their DNA and always what, you know, has saved them or or uh, what they've clung to when times are tough. But like the guys who made these games, I mean, do they have any, I mean, there couldn't have been much, many people with a background in game design. I mean, were these just like toy makers or did they have some sort of background in game design to make The Legend of Zelda or Metroid or something? Well, something uh, I mean, that the uh, the documentary touches on is that the genius thing that these people did with these games is that they realized that people liked playing as a character because right, no Atari right. game really did that. You were like a nameless gun shooting mm-hmm. aliens out of the sky or a little paddle that had to hit a ball back and forth. And then you, the reason Nintendo is, like you said, first generation of games with Super Mario Brothers and, and Zelda and all that is because you actually got to play as a character. You actually got to be a hero that you could see on the screen. Yeah, that was a huge part of it. They, they added like a story value to this. So you felt like, you know, I didn't just need to help this dot cross the street. I needed to help Mario save the princess. And that was whether it was a reason or just a good excuse to keep picking it up. You know, that kept you going and, and it sort of took things to another level. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the Nintendo games were really, I mean, you know, they, they started introducing stories and particularly uh, Ninja Gaiden sticks out in my memory as being the first game I really played, the first console game I really played with a really in-depth story and all these sort of film noir cutscenes and things like that. Uh, how important do you guys think that game was to the development of stories in games? Um, I think, I mean, I had never really thought about it before, but I do think looking back, it was because the cutscenes now are such a big part of the game. And, mm -hmm. um, even as much as Nintendo or games like Mario, um, Donkey Kong, Zelda kind of told the story, they, they, they didn't really tell that much of a story. They kind of let you interpret a lot. But in that game, you know, with those scenes, they do sort of have the author tell you kind of guided in their direction. And I think that that really helped progress things as well. Well, I also think that kind of ties into the fact that it was supposed to be an entertainment system. You know, it's it wasn't just a, a game where you did every action. It also made you feel like you had a story and that you were in a, in a way watching a movie um, and, and being entertained passively as well as actively. Yeah. And also, you know, in terms of Nintendo's new lexicon for trying to distance themselves, you know, I kind of remembered now that the games were called game packs. They weren't game cartridges or, or video games. It was game packs. Um, mm -hmm. And they also tried to introduce other things, like they did introduce a knitting machine that was terribly unsuccessful. And Say in 1991, now? they tried to uh, introduce a lottery in Minnesota where you could go online and actually play the lottery from your NES, um, which got shut down by the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the state government in Minnesota. Minnesota, but they really did sort of always envision it as this like Trojan <laughs> horse into like your kind of what the Xbox One is today, like your mm. one central hub. And they tried to do it with eight bits. Did you say a knitting machine? There was a Nintendo knitting machine. Um, what? They tried... Well, the thing was, I think that everyone that bought it, they did like that Men in Black thing, and they made you. Right. <laughs> uh, but the, but there are ads out there for the Nintendo knitting machine. Um, wow. Yeah, that went away a little bit faster than Rob the Robot did. <laughs> well, I mean, there were a lot of misbegotten peripherals for the NES, right? I mean, there was the power glove, and there was there was something where you could it was it was supposed to detect the movements of your hands, right? And it didn't really work. Yeah, yeah, the power. There was like a three. The, there was like a three D thing, wasn't there? Really, I remember yeah, the glove. The, the glove was in the movie The Wizard, and it was I was going to say The Wizard. Ever. How oh, genius yeah. is that? that? Like Nintendo basically did create an entire movie. Yeah, yeah, about yeah. their own console, <laughs> and they introduced Super Mario Brothers three through that movie. Oh, did they? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it hadn't come out did. yet. That's how they oh, like wow. let the world know that there was going to be a Super Mario Brothers three. Huh. No, you're totally right because this was you know before the internet where you didn't know what, what was happening until it actually happened. I right. Mean, I don't movie trailers like I don't even that concept never occurred to me. It was like until it was <clears> in your store that one day it didn't exist except Mario three. We knew like. Nine months in advance, this thing was coming. And mm -hmm. it was probably my favorite game before I ever even played it, just because I covered <laughs> it so much. Yeah. Although I will say I did obsessively read um, video game magazines when I was a kid, like Electronic Gaming Monthly and... Uh, oh, I had Nintendo Power, for Yeah, sure. Nintendo Power. Okay, sure, sure, yeah. And I, I don't remember the names of the other ones. I, I know uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly was one that I, I turned to frequently. Uh, well, Allison, you mentioned Nintendo Power, and I have very fond memories of that. Do you want to just talk about that magazine a little bit? Ugh, well, I have, I wish I wasn't in the middle of moving because I just packed up all my Nintendo powers because I have issue like 26 to 153 or something like that. And I, I keep them in a bookcase where I have them all lined up. So the bindings make the pictures, which I huh. thought was the coolest thing as a kid. Oh, wow. You know, 
Um, but they, they were just, you know, they gave you all the like sweet hints, cool Easter eggs you might not have known about, which I think back in the day, we didn't even call them Easter eggs. You know, mm-hmm. they were just like these special surprises that you could find in games. Um, and then if you, you know, if you were a, a subscriber, like I was, and you got sent the strategy guide. So I, you know, I have like a final fantasy strategy guide. Um, I'm pretty sure I have a super Mario brothers three strategy guide. And my brother and I would just sit there and like this, I'm pretty sure this is why I'm a completionist. Cause when you get a strategy guide, it tells you where to get everything. And I refused <laughs> to like finish a game without getting everything I could possibly get according oh, to the strategy man. guide. <laughs> I mean, the thing I remember most about Nintendo power is they had a, a make your own game contest. And I was like, oh, I'm going yeah. to enter this. And then I never did. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's just as well that I never did. Because the guy who won, was his thing was so much better than anything I could have even imagined doing. And I wonder if, I wonder what happened. Does anyone know what happened to that guy? Does anyone know, know the contest I'm talking about? I do not know that contest. But I, I do remember, you know, my earliest Nintendo memory was opening it up. But my favorite Nintendo memory was when Mario 2 came out. And I so desperately wanted that game. And back then, you know, getting a video game not for a birthday or Christmas was just, like, mm. impossible. Mm. Um, unless you could trick a grandparent into it. And I remember <laughs> I came up with this brilliant idea where I was like, oh, I'll just get a piece of cardboard and I'll draw the game and then I can play it. And just that I, I, I like, would have bet my life this would work. And then I remember putting it into the system and it was just, like, nothing. And I, <laughs> But I remember in that one moment where I drew the first level and I thought, man, I could just do this for every game. Maybe I can even make up my own game. This is wow. such a great thing. But that didn't turn out. But no, I don't remember <laughs> that contest. But I am curious. Well, oh, I actually remember when Super Mario Brothers 2 came out, my grandma drove me to the, uh, like, it was like a supermarket or something. Oh, no, what was it? Like, a, I don't know, some sort of uh, department store. And there was a whole group of people all camped outside. And we all, you know, we didn't know how many copies they were going to have. And so we all were all like, you know, run, when they opened the doors, we're all running through the aisles and elbowing each other and, you know, trying to race to get the... And that was the first time I'd ever seen any kind of, like, line like that to to get a video game you know it was pretty crazy oh you know um speaking of strategy guides uh, uh have you got did you guys ever like call like a 1-800 number to get hints <laughs> like i did that several times i can recall and it was always super oh frustrating gosh yes i think i totally remember doing that i definitely called several different times and uh it was always it was always uh uh exercise in frustration because you had to like you know go through the damn phone system and then you had to wait and they're trying to milk you for all the <laughs> all the time on the phone as they can and uh, but you know, sometimes you're stuck and you're stuck and you, you got to do something to get unstuck. And, uh, um, I mean, they didn't have strategy guides for every game. So sometimes that was your only recourse. And the funny thing is that like the Nintendo power that we remember finally, or, and the game counselors, which had that phone line, which I guess we have mixed memories on, especially <laughs> when we started charging money. Like mm-hmm. those were actually Nintendo's conscious business decisions to avoid the Atari ET disaster. They thought, you know, uh-huh. the whole thing happened there because nobody cared about the consumer because they just thought we can throw out any crap and they're going to play this game. Um, mm-hmm. So they wanted to make sure that the consumer was always having a great experience while also sort of like a drug addict, keeping them a little bit hooked <laughs> uh, uh, or a drug dealer, I should say. Um, but it's funny to think that those like because of that failure, that's why we have so many had mm-hmm. so many of those things that really made the Nintendo experience that much more extensive. Mm-hmm. How about the game genie? 
Oh my god, the game. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Isn't it crazy that we don't really have stuff like that anymore? Like we don't give ourselves the ability to cheat like that. <laughs> well, we, why do we need a game show anymore when we have steroids and baseball and everything like that? I mean, that's what it was, yeah. right? It was just steroids for video games. Well, it's <laughs> almost just like because there was there was no real way to save a lot of your games. Mm-hmm. Remember, you'd have to like leave your your system on and turn off your TV so it wouldn't burn into the screen if you wanted to not lose your place in the game. Yeah. So Game Genie always kind of gave you the ability to like cheat so you didn't have to keep stopping and turning the game off and starting over. You know what? I think I think half the reason that we actually have progressed to the state, I mean to the point where we can just save games wherever we want basically is because so much of the video game buying public now is adults and adults can't just keep playing a video game. They can't be a, they can't be like required to to get to a certain point in a video game uh because they have lives, they have to they have to go to jobs and stuff. You know? So, like, whereas a kid, a kid can be beholden to this video game until whatever. But you know, uh, uh, adults won't stand for it though. So I think that's part of the reason. I mean, of course, obviously, memory being getting yeah. uh, smaller and having cheaper and everything is a factor. But I think that was and also- because we're all scared to burn images into our TV screens. <laughs> well, 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 John, I mean, I used to, you know, uh, later, I, you know, these emulators came out for the NES, so you could go back yeah. and play all these old NES games and actually oh, yeah. save, save and reload as much as you want. And I was like, I can't believe there's only 40 minutes of content in this game. I spent thousands of hours playing it. (laughs) But they were like, you would just have this little tiny game that was incredibly hard and made you replay huge sections of it over and over again. Has anyone here ever gotten past level two in Adventure Island? (laughs) Because I swear I've never seen anything further in that game. And that was one of the only games that there was no game genie cheats for it. I don't think I even played that one. I, I uh, in preparation for the panel, I, I was looking at some lists online of like the top 100 NES games and all that, and you know, sparking some memories and everything. And and I saw that one on a number of lists, and I, I just I don't even remember that one. Oh gosh, you were like a little caveman kind of dude. On the but for some reason, thing? you rode a skateboard. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, you got you basically couldn't replenish your health in any way, so you mm-hmm. got hit three times and you you were dead, and you only got three lives. And that that was it. Like I've never seen I've never seen anyone get past level two. Okay, wait. Has, have you guys played Ghosts and Goblins? Because mm-hmm. oh, that yeah. game is effing impossible. <laughs> like it's the most frustrating and impossible game I've ever, I think I've ever encountered. Like okay, so you're you're this guy and you have this little suit of armor, and if you get hit, you lose your armor and you're running around in your underwear, and if you get hit again, you're dead. And you <laughs> have to go through the like I swear every section of this game is completely impossible. And if you make it to the end, apparently, from what I've read, you have to start over at level four and do them all again, because it turns out that the whole oh, second no. half of the game was a was a dream created by Satan. Ha! Oh my gosh. <laughs> Classic. Well, let me ask you guys, you know, the games, I do remember so much, like, spending five hours to beat, like, one level or, or even more than that. Do you think that it was because the games didn't have the ability to save and, and that kind of thing? Or do you think it's just because we didn't really know how to play video games hmm. that much? Because, you know, I played Mario 1 a month or so ago and you know i without the saving i at least did it significantly better than i did as a kid and it's because like i'm used to controlling a platform or i'm, I'm used to mm-hmm. this kind well, of is gaming. it that or is it because something like mario brothers like we know where everything is in that game because it's just not nearly as massive yeah. as the games we play it's it's almost like you're always going to remember your childhood phone number i'm yep. always going to know where all those hidden blocks are in mario brothers so we don't think when we go through it anymore we're able to just kind of breeze yeah. through 
And when I was a kid, I never like all the like little um, candles in Castlevania or all the little <clears throat> candles in oh, yeah. um, Ninja Gaiden. I'm sure like now I would actually write down what they all are and figure out the optimum strategy for what I should get to get through each section. Mm. But as a kid, I never had the patience for that shit. But I'm sure the <laughs> games are I'm sure the games are a lot more, you know, fe- it's a lot more feasible to beat them if you actually figure out those all those power ups and everything. But Ninja Gaiden 2 haunts me because that's like the one game I spent the most time trying to beat and never could. I made it up well, to the second last boss, but I could never beat him. You know, the but, other thing is that I realized with with games back then is we it's hard, it was hard to know when they actually ended. Uh-huh. Like, I, th- I think we didn't know when there was a goal. Like, I, I spent one Christmas probably like four or five years ago. My cousin and I were like, you know what? Let's see how Rampage ends. Do you remember Rampage where you're mm-hmm. Godzilla? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some other mo- and you're King man. Kong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you're just tearing down a city. We were mm-hmm. like, because no, I don't feel like I know anyone who ever finished Rampage because every level was basically the same thing. It just took a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And so Brian, my cousin and I were like, we're just going to sit down and we're going to beat Rampage until it ends. And I am not joking you. We played for seven or eight straight hours of just tearing down the same looking buildings over and over and over again. And then at one point we finished tearing down buildings, the whole screen kind of flashes and then it's a black screen and it says, congratulations. And then it starts over. That's all it does. (laughs) We played the game for seven hours to find that out. So I feel like there was a lot of games back then when you just, you didn't quite know where your goal point was. Yeah, no, I I can't I can remember that a lot of games like just had just had completely lackluster endings and and like you felt like ripped off when you get to the end of it because you're like Pfft. it's like I just fought my way through all of this and then I and I get nothing there's no there's nothing it's just like I just get to see credits and stuff and it, it, it was always kind of lack, uh sort of yeah just lackluster and disappointing. But in hindsight, didn't it prepare us well for life? <laughs> it's like all right, you won. Yeah. Next thing. Too real. I, too real. <laughs> I always kind of hoped that after I beat a game, I I felt like Nintendo should send me like a certificate in the mail. Um, though I don't know how that would have actually worked. Oh, I took I took a uh, picture of my kill screen when I beat Ducktales and sent it to Nintendo Power, and they sent me back a letter saying congratulations. Huh. And that was That's one awesome. of my like gaming crowning moments. Wow. Speaking of DuckTales, like, how the hell did that work? Like, I don't understand, like, that that primitive technology seems, like, magical to me. Like, they had a gun that you could fire at your television, and it registered when you actually hit a no, duck. No, that's Duck like, Hunt. Duck Hunt. Yeah, what did you say? No, DuckTales. Oh, DuckTales. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. I, was thinking, I, was, I was on Duck Hunt. But yeah, so how did, but, how, but seriously, how did Duck Hunt work? That I don't understand it. Like, how duck did it know? something about, the duck was actually, like, a different... There was something about the the one pixel in the duck was like a completely black pixel. I'm kind of making this up, but it has something to do with one of the pixels in the duck. No, and no, the that's gun kind of right. registered yeah. when you hit that pixel. How did it know? How did the duck know? The, the gun that flashed. It was like a oh, flashlight could register it. That seems like magic. Yeah. The thing was like Nintendo, um, you know, they didn't really get into the arcade business or the home video game business until like 1977 or 78 or so. And before that, they had like these clay laser shooting things in bowling alleys. So it was kind of like the duck hunt game. But ah. it was like supposed to be in a bowling alley. It was like a big center you would go to. So they, I think that's where the original uh, technology for them having that, but it definitely blew my mind. And until I realized you can just go right up to the screen, and kill them. Very. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like shooting ducks in a barrel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but you know what game had the best ending ever though? It was Bionic Commando. 
That's like my, my total highlight of playing NES games was beating Bionic Commando and shooting Hitler with a missile on the first try and <laughs> with, like, with, with all my friends watching and, <laughs> you know, it was just, and then you, then you have to escape from the complex and then he runs back in and you're freaking out. And no, that was, that was, that's, that's my all time favorite game is Bionic Commando for the NES. Um, how about you guys? Favorite? What's your all time favorite NES games? I so mean, I many. Think that- I Go think ahead, as a Allison. series overall, um, Mario Kart, mm. it's just, it's still a game that I can go back to any generation of that game and have fun playing. Yeah, Mario Kart's awesome. Um, I mean, I think Mario 3, like I said, from The Wizard, like, that just had such a special place in my heart, you know, because I had those, like, nine months to really want it. And then the other game that I loved so much was Bubble Bobble, because that was one mm. of the few oh, games yeah. that my brother and I could play, like, cooperatively. And um, he always wanted to be like play together. Even later on, when we get like the sports games, he always wanted to be on my team instead of play against me, which I thought was ridiculous. But in that game, <laughs> it was really fun, and uh, that would probably be my favorite game for the NES. Did you guys play Bubble Bobble ever? I don't know if I did. I I, I saw that on a, one of the lists of top 100 games and whatever, and uh, I, I didn't remember it. It's uh this game where you're like a little cute alien creature, and there's um little monsters um, on a screen and you blow bubbles at them, which uh, traps them. And then you pop it and and they turn into fruit. So it's very logical. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So for, for me, my favorite probably would be the Zelda series. Like uh, legend of Zelda was huge for me when I, when I first discovered it and, um, and uh, the adventure of link also like, uh, and that actually the adventure of link is, is sort of my saddest memory um, <laughs> from my video game years when I was a kid, uh, because, uh, I was playing the game and I, I was, you know, maybe halfway through, three quarters of the way through and our house got robbed <gasps> and our house, got, oh my our, God. our house actually got robbed three times in the span of like a month or two. And the first time the, the robbers didn't take my Nintendo or, or any of my games, but then the second time they took it and they took all my games. And so I lost all my progress on the adventure of Link. Oh, um, so that was like the <laughs> dagger. Where did you live that you get robbed three times in a month? Uh, I lived I lived in Florida, and we lived in this in the, we lived in this town where it was like um, we were way on the outskirts of where it hadn't really been developed yet. So it was like we had like one house on my street, my house. It was the only house on my street, um, and there's just like a bunch of empty lots all around us. Um, and we were right next to the like I ninety five, so like people could like drive by and see that there was no cars in front of our house, and so <laughs> you know it wasn't very good, wasn't very secure. So, so to this day, have you ever beaten The Adventure of Link? Um, I did get it again, and I definitely played it a lot once I got it the second time. I don't remember if I finished it. I probably did because I was I was pretty meticulous uh, back then about these things. But, um, but yeah, that was just that was a real blow, though. It's like it, it wasn't even that I lost the Nintendo; it was that I lost all my progress on Adventure of Link. <laughs> but didn't some small part of you take some solace in the fact that the robber with his family could like brag that he was three quarters of the way through, but <laughs> <laughs> none the wiser? Honestly, I never, I never empathized with him in that way. That, but, that's uh, probably yeah. what happened. Is first he stole a Nintendo that only it was like someone was yeah. only a quarter of the way through, and he's like, "I got to rob another house because I need an adventure of the link where someone's made a little bit more progress." But I was going to say about uh, Zelda. I had my most like ego bruising experience with Zelda was uh, I had beaten this. You know, like after you beat the whole game, this is the second quest, which is even harder. And I had beaten that. And then one of, like, this kid I knew, he couldn't figure out how to beat the last level in it. 
And so he was getting desperate. And this was, you know, it was hard to like, there's no internet. You just couldn't, couldn't just look up the solutions to the games. And so he actually paid me $25 to come over to his house and show him how to beat the last level. Oh my God. And I couldn't, (laughs) and I couldn't know, but I couldn't figure it out. And we spent like six, I spent, I spent like six hours at his house trying to figure it out. And then finally, I just had to go home. I had to give him his 25 bucks back because I just, Uh. I, I couldn't figure out which wall I was supposed to bomb or whatever. Ah, bogus. I, I very distinctly remember I couldn't uh, find the uh, raft in the game, and I knew you know it was hidden in the level, and I knew that there was this kid in my class, Kirtan, who knew how to knew how to find the raft, and I wasn't friends with him, but I asked my mom, could I invite Kirtan over? And she said <laughs> kind of suspiciously, like, don't you not like that kid? I said, I know, but he knows how to get the raft, and she said, all right, but this is like not a good way to go about making friends. Uh, but that, but but it really was back then like the Nintendo, who had Sega and who had Nintendo was like such a big oh, part yeah. of choosing friendships and, and <laughs> ending friendships let's see blake in in the course of researching this book did you turn up just any weird game trivia kinds of things uh one thing i was i was going back through the old games and i always thought that um the cover of metal gear that it kind of looked like michael bean from aliens and then <laughs> i actually discovered that the artist just took a publicity still of michael bean from aliens and just like, <laughs> drew, like just copied like flat out copied everything in it and made that the cover of metal gear Wow. Um, yeah, there was all sorts of stories. I mean, I think just going back to Mario uh, to find out that he was named after the landlord of uh, Sigali Park, where Nintendo's offices were, and that that guy's name was Mario Sigali, so they called him Mario. And the reason that they did was because he was like this landlord who they never saw. They used to joke, did he exist? Did he not exist? And then this game came out, and they thought it was going to be popular, so they said, let's make him the most popular guy in the world, since he doesn't <laughs> want anyone to know he exists. Well, they won. Yes. Definitely. Well, how about the fact that Mario 2 was actually some crazy Japanese game that they just stuck the Mario characters in? That's why it's so weird and out of place with the whole series. Mm. Yeah, that was a really big mind-blowing moment to find out that Mario 2 was really just Doki Doki Panic, but with these guys replacing them. And I kind of feel like in high... like or playing it again mario 2 is like really fun though at the time it felt so different and, and kind of really much worse yeah did you guys did you guys like that game at the time or was it uh, uh the odd I, duck in the family i kind of like the fact that the characters actually did different things and there were yeah, you could yeah. it, there was a strategy to picking which character would beat which level that that i dug about it yeah totally i I like, and then you could also pick like between levels too, so it wasn't like you were stuck with uh, Princess or Luigi. Um, yeah, you could vary it up. Although the only time you use Toad is in the digging levels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. When that first came out, I thought I was really disappointed, but I, I think I got to like it more the more I played it. But I, I definitely like the first time you jump on an enemy and he doesn't die, and you're just like, "What the hell is going on here?" <laughs> oh yeah. I don't really remember Mario 2 that much, but, um, you know, when I was, like I said, when I was looking up these, uh, different lists, um, and prep for the, for the panel, uh, there was this one list that actually had, like, it was like the top 100 games that you could actually play in an emulator in your browser. Um, and I was actually thinking, like, how funny it is that, like, Nintendo games have become so worthless that they're not only available to just get online for free, but you don't even need to download anything. You can just play it in your freaking browser. It's like we've come so far. You know, like, these things were amazing to us back in the day. And then now they're just, like, these little 
little tiny things that you just run in a browser. Um, but, uh, but you know, I saw, um, Mario 2 was on there and I, and I, and I, I sort of clicked onto it because I didn't really remember it and, and, and I kind of vaguely remember it, but I don't even know if I really played that one. I may have, may have just missed that one somehow. <laughs> I know it seems impossible, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like blocking out the first three Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was just gonna say earlier that definitely like, you know, learning about the like behind the scenes and the games and why this guy looked like that, you know, kind of blew my mind. But the one that really changed the way I thought about it all was just learning about like what Nintendo did. Like we talked about the Game Genie earlier and Nintendo sued the company that made it and it didn't come out for a really long time. And there was a back and forth for like two years because Nintendo didn't want anybody to be messing with their system and changing their products. And the same thing with like Blockbuster, like they sued Blockbuster at all the mom and pop rental shops because they didn't want games to be rented. So these were like all the things that really made me think there was something else going on behind the scenes um, that I had no idea about as a kid that there was this other Nintendo that wasn't just the happy, joyful (laughs) one. Well, one thing you said, Blake, that really struck me is you said that the book that's most similar to yours is Game of Thrones. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's what it's all about. Like, when I got to the point where I realized that there was, like, no good guys or bad guys, that, you know, it was just all these different houses with their own philosophies, and they all thought they were entitled to be the king of the mountain. So between Sony, Sega, um, Nintendo, and then even the third parties, it really felt like Game of Thrones. And just, you know... When I wrote the Nintendo chapters, I felt like I genuinely hated Sega. And when I wrote the Sega chapters, I genuinely hated Nintendo. Um, <laughs> and it was just these great larger-than-life characters. So which one is most like the Lannisters? Yeah. I mean, definitely Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> like, Nintendo has, like, the best balance sheet and financials possible. Even though they've been mm-hmm. doing terribly with the Wii U, I heard that they can still go 30 more years of having losses of $250 million a year because they just have <laughs> this war chest. Though I guess maybe the Lannisters, spoiler alert, don't have that war chest. But they at least <laughs> always pay their debts, and they sort of hold themselves a notch above. And you could say, okay, the Lannisters are kind of arrogant in that regard. But at the same time, you know, they, they are a pretty impressive family. Um, and Sega was more of these upstarts um, that I guess I liken more to the Stark family. So is, like, Mario Tyrion, and Luigi is Jamie, and the princess <laughs> is uh, Cersei? Or... I mean, I, I don't know what Luigi is. I always feel so bad. <laughs> he just, like, totally got shafted. I don't really understand his whole role. Like, well, if my brother I, asked me to help him save a girl, I'd be like, okay, maybe, like, the first time I'll do this. But to just keep always helping my brother, <laughs> like, wouldn't you lose respect for me? Like, wh- what am I doing in my life? I think I think the best, the best sort of, uh, not description, but the, the, the best example of, like, what Luigi or who Luigi is is in, you know, the amazing movie Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> When someone asks for their name and Mario's like, I'm Mario. And he's like, what's your last name? Mario. <laughs> and then he asks Luigi, what's his name? And he's like, Luigi. And he's like, what's your last name? Mario. And he's like, so let me get this straight. Is your name are Mario Mario and Luigi Mario? And they're like, yeah, Luigi has Mario's last name. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's so sad. So do you think there will ever be another Super Mario Brothers movie? <laughs> uh, John Leguizamo think- signs on. <laughs> There definitely should be. That's kind of like, you know, the way you guys were talking about Nintendo earlier, that like you haven't played their games or picked up their systems in years. I, I, you know, I think a lot of that is because they've done such a poor job, I guess, intentionally, even with their like IPs and their characters. I think that 
whether it's, you know, there, there's those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s that are now in our 20s, 30s, and 40s, and we love Nintendo in that special way, but, you know, we can only play Mario 2 and Mario 3 so much. They, they, they should try to, like, find a way to, I guess, age up those characters and use that nostalgia, but also sort of keep the story moving forward, and I feel like that would make me more likely to want to be part of the Nintendoverse. So a movie would be a great way to do that, and, you know, even, like, graphic novels, I feel like, or a TV show. You know, my dream is to write the Shy Guys TV show. Um, I'm hoping that they'll come up with that. Um, but they have all these great characters and, you know, I'd love to see them do more with it. And I think that that a movie is like a very logical step. Actually, Blake, speaking of movies, why don't you tell us about some of the, the two movies that are in development based on your book? Sure. Um, so there's a documentary that I am directing with my business partner, Jonah Tulis, and that's being, uh, produced by Seth Rogen. Evan Goldberg and Scott Rudin. And then those three guys are also doing the feature film adaptation for Sony Pictures with Seth and Evan are uh, writing and directing and Scott is producing. And uh, we are in the middle of post-production on the documentary. We shot 15 interviews last year when I was writing the book. Um, we just showed a cut to the guys uh, last week that they really liked. And they are in New York um, for the summer, fall to uh, shoot a movie that Seth is shooting here. So uh, we're going to get to work in their office starting next month and uh, hopefully finish it up by the end of the year. And then sort of as we're finishing this up, Seth and Evan are going to start writing the script for the feature film, which, you know, I, I did say Game of Thrones is the biggest inspiration and that was kind of how I wrote it. But I think that on the screen, it'll be something more like the social network of video games, sort of this behind the scenes story of the, of the people who made this happen and, and the betrayals and alliances that made it happen. I mean, is there a particular character it's going to focus on? Uh, I mean, I can't speak for how they're going to, you know, do it on the screen in their feature. But in the book, like definitely the focal point is Tom Kalinske, who was the CEO of Sega of America from 1990 to 96. And before we even started talking about his time at Sega, I realized this guy is the adult most responsible for my childhood other than my parents. You know, he helped <laughs> resurrect the Barbie line at Mattel. And then he did for boys, but Barbie did for girls with He-Man Masters of the Universe and all wow. sorts of other toys like Popples, which I loved. And then he went to Matchbox. <gasps> and it was like, oh. So he oh my was like, gosh, I haven't thought about them in ages. Yeah, so the guy behind that sort of like lost his job due to internal politics, and he's on a beach in Hawaii in 1990, sort of down on his luck, trying to figure out if there's ever going to be a good opportunity in his life. He's getting a little bit older, and then he's approached on the beach by this short, um, tyrannical Japanese man named Hayao Nakayama, who is the president of Sager Enterprises, and he says, Tom, I've been looking for you. And Tom says, How, what are you doing here? He says, I wanted to find you so that you can come run Sega and take on Nintendo. And Tom said, um, I don't really even know anything about video games. I'm not, like, I don't even know what Sega is. What is, what is this? <laughs> um, and then he was uh, enticed to go to Japan in the middle of his family vacation, saw the 16-bit technology, saw what this was all about, and saw a chance to you know, find the greatness that he had once had by taking on Nintendo. And, and it was a Herculean task that he was able to pull off. Um, so I always felt like, that was the central character for me that made this a great story for gamers and non-gamers alike. The one that even my parents who don't know anything about video games could follow along with a guy sort of middle-aged trying to have his one last chance in this David and Goliath story. But, you know, although, although our panel yeah. here is uh, focused on Nintendo, I, I have to say, uh, if there was a video game system in, in my heart, it would be a Sega Genesis uh, rather than <laughs> Nintendo. Oh. Wow. Console Wars! <laughs> <laughs> I actually, John, when when that came, when the Genesis came out, I wanted it more than anything, and I just begged and begged and begged my parents. They never got it for me, and a lot of my, a lot of my friends had the same experience. Our parents were like, "Oh, we already bought a Nintendo. We're not buying another game system." And one of my friends, his parents actually said, "Like, 
the G word is banned from this house. We're just not allowed to use the word Genesis in this house anymore because we had all begged for it so much. Uh, when I when I got my Genesis, uh, I, I did have to do some convincing as well. But um, it was my my first semester of high school uh, as a freshman, and uh, I suspected that I was about to get straight A's, and I had never done that before. And so I I told I went to my mom and I said, Mom, if I get straight A's this semester, can I get a Genesis for Christmas? And so she said yes, and then I did, and then so I got it. So wow. it was it was a it was it was it was a bit of a gamble on my part, you know, because what if I didn't get the straight A's? But you know, uh, it worked out, and then I never got straight A's ever again. Because <laughs> yeah, because you already had a Genesis, so why bother? <laughs> yeah, right? so fuck yeah. it. I mean, you know, plus I I didn't spend any time studying because I was playing Genesis. <laughs> my my cousins had a Genesis, so whenever we needed our fix, we would go over to their house and play. <laughs> Actually, Allison, I saw that you basically owe your whole career to a Nintendo controller necklace that you bought. Yeah, actually, I didn't buy it. It was given to me as a gift. So thanks to that friend. Um, but uh, but you know, I, I I was living in LA and I was I was acting. But as most actors do, they have second jobs, and I was bartending. And one night, I was wearing that Nintendo remote control necklace, and a guy who worked in development at G Four came in and sat at my bar and asked me about it. And I was like, oh, I've played video games since I was like five. And he's like, But you're a girl. And I'm like. Yep, I am. <laughs> He's like, we need to talk. And he sat at my bar for like two hours and asked me questions about video games and, and all sorts of nerdy stuff. And then he was convinced that I needed to be on their network. So he got me a meeting with uh, the head of development at G4, not development, the head of talent um, at G4. And lo and behold, here I am seven years later going on podcasts wow. talking about video games. <laughs> well, what do you think, Allison, what do you think it is about the stigma of being a girl with games. I mean, I don't think there's anything about playing Mario that made me feel like this was a, a uniquely boy experience, but video games have sort of um, historically, and especially back then, were, were more for guys. Why do you think yeah, that was? I, I honestly don't know. I feel like, I, I have a feeling that because computer games kind of attracted a techier and nerdier crowd for the most part, and that tended to be guys more than girls. Um, right. And, I, you know, I know growing up, like, the girls in my class were way more interested in learning how to ride horses than playing video games. And I just wasn't interested in horses for whatever reason. I was definitely, like, the oddball in, in that sense. So I played, I played video games. But I don't think there's something innately male about video games, which is why, you know, these days when we have the term girl gamer, it, it kind of makes me cringe a little. Um you know, I, I I just feel like for whatever reason, girls growing up kind of, at least in my generation, took interest in other things. But, you know, we're popping up. There's th- there's now more of us. And I think girls growing up now are much more attracted to video games than they were when I was growing up. That's funny that you weren't interested in horses and you're now playing a unicorn on TV. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. Horses terrify me. <laughs> I, I, I'm from Tewksbury, New Jersey, and, and it's a part of New Jersey that's known for training Olympic champion horses. Like horses is a lifestyle where I'm from. And I would go to horse farms and like pet horses. But any of my friends who tried to put me on a horse, I was so terrified of this like beast underneath me that was going to throw me to the ground that I just never, never wanted to take a riding lesson. <laughs> um but now I'm an actor, so I can pretend, and that's why I get to play a unicorn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a pilot that we shot for Adult Swim called the, I always say the name wrong, it's the Team Unicorn Saturday Action Fun Hour, which is funny because should our show go, it will probably be on like a Tuesday night and it's only going to be 15 minutes. So <laughs> nothing in the title is accurate. Um, but uh, but is it's it a fun? show. What? <laughs> it is fun? definitely fun. I will okay. give you that. And so it does involve true. Team Unicorn. So, but it's, it's you know, uh, Claire Grant and, and Riley Vanderbilt created this Team Unicorn team, you know, a few years ago. And they've done a lot of online uh, videos and had a lot of success with that and then sold this pilot concept to Adult Swim. And it's basically an homage to all the Saturday morning cartoons we grew up with. So, for example, you know, G.I. Joe always started off with like Mr. T coming on and being like, kids, are you mm-hmm. dealing with bullying at home? Here's how the Joes handle it. And then you watch your episode and then he comes back on at the end and is like, so talk to your parents if you're dealing with bullying. It's the same idea. We have that live action us at the beginning and the end. And then it's a cartoon in the middle. Um, the, the difference is, though, it's just we give really terrible advice to children. Um, and it's all very violent and inappropriate and hilarious. And it's it's a show that I would watch if I was not a part of it, which is always a good sign. So we should be finding out soon within the next month or so if we if we are going to series which i hope we do because it's the type of show that i want everyone to see awesome good luck that sounds thank great. you yeah thanks oh, uh you know i was gonna say uh speaking of girl gamers uh you know i watched the the video games the documentary uh the other night with uh with my wife and my sister-in-law uh who are both gamers and uh we could we it took us like three or four hours to actually watch the documentary because we just kept pausing it because we would get into conversations. We're like, oh my God, do you remember this, this, and this? And, you know, we just, it was just like going down memory lane and, and, uh, and, and it was, it was a little different because my wife and I are similar ages, but then my sister-in-law is like 24. So she's much younger than us. And, um, but she still had, uh, you know, that sort of, uh, video game experience. Um, and of course, I mean, the documentary talks about more than NES, but still, um, it was just funny that we, we, we couldn't get more than like five minutes before we had to pause it and just have a conversation. No, that's I mean, the best part of this whole subject matter. You know, I spent three and a half years working on the book and documentary, and I'm still working on it. And I, I have not met a single person between 20 and 50 that didn't immediately respond to me talking about the project with their own personal memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of likened it to the JFK assassination, but the kind of like <laughs> upbeat version where like everybody you mentioned it to has their own story of like where they were. Like, oh, <laughs> we asked our parents for this. We couldn't get this. We got the little ticket at Toys R Us, but then we got the game. So it's just amazing, you know. It was such a great part of our lives that, you know, in the pre-internet era when we all didn't have something in common, we had this, mm-hmm. it was in one in three homes, and that was kind of like our common currency. And it's nice to realize, oh, man, we were all at that same party, and we can talk about it now. Yeah, and the thing is, is, like, even if there there's plenty of people these days who are our age who don't play games, who who would never consider themselves gamers, but you know that at some point in their childhood, they did. It's mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know a single person who didn't maybe not own a, a Nintendo, but at least played one at their neighbor's house. See, Allison, I mean, we mentioned that you were in video games, the movie. Is there any other video game stuff that you've been involved with lately that you want to let people know about? Um, I feel like you're asking me that because I should have an answer to it, but I can't think of anything <laughs> right now. Uh, no, I'm not doing anything specifically with video games at the moment besides playing them. Um, Although I will be going down to Comic-Con next weekend, obviously. And uh, I'm, I'm co-hosting a SiriusXM 
show called Geek Time for two hours. And we will be talking about video games for a portion of that, just talking about what's going on in the industry right now and what's being represented at Comic-Con and that kind of stuff. And so how, do, how would I, like, if I wanted to listen to that, how would I find it? Uh, I believe it will be on Sirius 101. Um, so if you have a, you need to have Sirius, um, which I highly recommend. I have Sirius. <laughs> it's so funny. I shouldn't tell Sirius this, but like, you know, I bought a new car a couple years ago and it came with six months of free Sirius. And I was like, I'm never, whatever. I, who would pay for radio in their car? That's so silly. But I started listening to it and then six months go by and they're like, your subscription's up. And I'm like, take all my money. <laughs> all I need is serious in my life. So, <laughs> um, so I actually highly recommend Sirius, even though it sounds like a plug because I'm working for them. I don't normally work for them. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. And speaking for plugs, John, you want to plug your new book, Press Start to Play? Uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, I co-edited it with Daniel H. Wilson, and uh, it's going to be coming out from Vintage um, in like fall 2015. Um, and we have a bunch of great people lined up for it, like um, like Shawnee McGuire and Robin Wasserman, uh, Veronica Belmont, uh, Hugh Howie, and and then uh, yeah, so those sort of uh, Ernie Klein, you know, who wrote uh, Ready Player One. Um, and so so those are sort of people that are like, well, OK, you might expect them to be writing stories for this. But then we also got a bunch of game developers. So we got like Chris Avalone and um, uh, Mark Laidlaw and Ted Kazmatka and Rihanna Pratchett. So uh, it was really exciting to get people like that, um, you know. Uh, taking a step away from actually writing video games and actually just writing some pro stories. Um, and the whole idea is to write stories that are inspired by video games in some way. So whether it's, um, you know, stories that sort of replicate the experience of playing a video game in prose form or, uh, you know, sort of fantasy, science fiction or fantasy stories that sort of take video games, um, you know, uh, and sort of warp the reality around them so that, like, you know, you interact with the video game in real life or something like that. But, um, so yeah, it's you know uh, we don't uh, we don't really have stories uh, in hand for it yet because uh, the deadline's still far away, but uh, it's going to be cool, I think. Um, one of the things we suggested to the authors is that they pick uh, story titles uh, from this list of things that we came up with. So we wanted because like really what I imagined as the perfect table of contents would have would just like read like a list of video game terms. So like a story might be called Save Point, and one might be called First Person Shooter, and one might be called Respawn or something like that. And um, I just thought that would be really cool. And so like uh, I know a couple of them are at least thinking about it. And Shonda McGuire's story, she already turned in actually. It's called Survival Horror. So that was one of the ones we had in mind. Um, and, um, I'm really hoping someone's going to write a story called you have died of dysentery just for the, like, for the old, yes! for the old, for the old school gamers, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, I think it's going to be fun. All right, cool. So, uh, so that's uh, just about all our time. Do you guys have any, anyone want to throw in any uh, final thoughts about the legacy of the original Nintendo entertainment system or. Yeah. You know, actually, you know what I just thought of is, uh, you know, I think growing up, a lot of our parents were always like, you should stop playing games and go outside and play and that kind of thing. And I'll always remember that for whatever reason, my mother loved Dr. Mario. Do you remember? <laughs> it was basically like Tetris kind yeah, of yeah. But with Mario characters. And my mom would come in and be like, um, you kids should go play for 30 minutes and I can play Dr. Mario. <laughs> she would like take over the console just as so you can play Dr. Mario. And it, I, I feel like it's just such a good example of how Nintendo really does make games for the family and they really were yeah. all about like being an entertainment system for a household, which is pretty incredible. And now like people will tell their people who grew up with games are going to say, don't go out and play, play Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, oh, my final thought too. I don't care what the experts say. I think blowing on the cartridge absolutely works. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our panel. So thank you to Allison Hayslip, Blake J. Harris, and John Just Fathoms for joining us as guest geeks. And of course, big thanks again to Charles Strauss for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Lee Kalati in the UK. Also, a very special thank you to Zoe Kim, crowdfunder number 83, who just became the latest listener to be making monthly contributions to the show. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Abigail Drake, Wes Weathersby, Nick Suffolk, Jason Lind, Laura Dirks, Vlad Levin, George Turcotte, and Raymond Chan. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. Also, if you listen to our panel on assholes and trolls back in episode 110, you'll know that our posts over at wire.com always seem to draw a large number of comments from assholes and trolls. But for our last episode, we had a bunch of listeners show up and shout down the trolls, which was nice. So I'd really like to thank Collier, Digum1, Verlaine77, Hatch John, S.A. Barton, Jeff Furlington, and Steve Schmidt for taking the time to push back against all the assholes out there. If anyone wants to post a comment on the episode you just heard, you can find links to our Wired posts by visiting us at geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the links that say click to listen. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.